0: Mockholtz, and you are listening to Looking Up with Don. This is the Looking Up with Don podcast, episode number 129 for the week of June 22nd, 2022. The related website for this podcast is com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. What's up in the sky this week? As our week begins on Wednesday, June 22nd, the moon is in our morning sky, 35% full and among all those planets. The moon will be new early next Wednesday, June 29th at 0251 Universal Time. And for some of you, that will be on the evening of Tuesday, June 28th. This end of this week and the beginning of next week is a good time to try to see the very old moon, a thin crescent in the morning sky, are the very young moon just after new moon in the evening sky. Now, we still have those five bright planets in our morning sky. Mercury, as seen from the Earth, is getting closer to the sun each day, but it's also getting brighter each day. But if you do get up before dawn with the unaided eye or binoculars, you can see Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn and our moon, all in a row. Will you be able to see the International Space Station this week, which for our purposes begins Wednesday, June 22nd through Tuesday, June 28th? It depends upon where you are located. This week we have four zones. All you need to know is your latitude. Two areas will not see the ISS this week north of 48 degrees north, it will simply not be visible. And between 32 degrees south and 10 degrees north, the ISS will not be in your skies this week. But it will be in the morning sky for at least part of the week between 10 and 48 degrees north. And From 60 degrees south to 32 degrees south, it will be in your evening sky for at least part of the week. To determine where it will be in your sky, go to the website heavens-above.com and enter your location, then click on ISS. Our one comet that is visible is up all night long, and it's near the equator. It is the much anticipated comet 2017 K2 Pan Stars, discovered now nearly five years ago. It is still six months away from its closest point to the Sun, and right now it's about magnitude nine. You can barely see it in binoculars and much easier in a small telescope. The northern hemisphere will have it in view until the middle of October. By then, It will be a binocular object in Scorpius in the evening southern sky. Now, the southern hemisphere will see it at its brightest early next year. It is labeled on Podcast 129, Maps 1 and 2. For a more detailed map, go to heavens-above.com and click on Comets. This week, I continue my series of describing each of my visual comet discoveries near the time of the year when it actually took place. This week, I'll be discussing a discovery that occurred on July 2, 1992. It was my sixth comet discovery and one of the smallest and least observed comets that I have ever found. The story, with pictures, can be found on my website, DonMockholtz.com. On today's installment, I will be reading much of that account and filling in some more details. Here it is. After I discovered Comet Tanaka-Mockholtz, 1992D, upon completion of a conversation with Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory's director, Dr. Brian Marsden, he said to me, go out and find another comet. Little did I know that this would not take long. Seeking comets was a hobby I began in 1975. It branched off my interest in astronomy, dating from 1965, when I received on my 13th birthday, a 2-inch refractor telescope. My first two nights with the scope were disappointing. In fact, I almost gave up the hobby at that time. But viewing Saturn on the evening of October 10, 1965, encouraged me to continue using the telescope and learn more about the sky. I found my first comment in 1978, after searching for 1,700 hours. Comet Mockholz 1978L, remained faint, and it left the solar system never to come back. My second comet, C, 1985K1 Macholtz, found from the Riverside Telescope Makers Conference at Big Bear, California, on May 27, 1985, took another 1,742 hours to find. At this time, it was the longest amount of searching ever known to discover a comet. That comet remained visible for a month. It then disintegrated as it neared the sun. My next comet, Periodic Comet Macholtz 96P, took just under one year and 173 search hours to find, a very unusual comet. It returns every 5.2 years. It passes very close to the sun. And then it races out to Jupiter's orbit, where large telescopes can continue to track it. It returns to our part of the solar system every 5.2 years. My fourth comet, Comet Machos, 1988 J, also known as C-1988P1, was observed for about three weeks before it, too, disintegrated as it neared the sun. It had taken 460 hours to find and was my last comet find from the Santa Cruz mountain area. My fifth comet came nearly three years later while sweeping from Koufax, California. It was seen by a Japanese comet hunter a week before my discovery, but was not confirmed until I saw it. It is now known as Comet Tanaka-Makultz, and it performed well, remaining visible for three full months. For discovering Comet Tanaka-Makultz, my mother gave me $20. I said to her, well, what's this for? She said, for finding the comet. I've always given you $20 for finding a comet. For the life of me, I could not remember receiving money from my parents for finding a comet. But I did not want to argue, so I took the money. Times were tough. I decided to use the money to further my hobby of comet hunting. The most that I could do, I figured, would be to permanently mount a large pipe in the ground where one of my observatories would later be built. I was then thinking of building two observatories, one for the big binoculars and the other for the 10-inch telescope. As it turned out, the next year I would build only one observatory to house both instruments. But that's a different story. My idea now was to use this planted pipe to hold a telescope or the binoculars And later, the new observatory could be built around it. I figured my best bet would be to dig a hole and sink a long pipe into it, with about three feet of pipe remaining above the ground. I searched far and wide for a three inch diameter metal pipe. All over Koufax, California, I asked people if they had an old pipe they did not want. Finally, Tom Sierra directed me to one of his yards where I was able to have a five-foot length of pipe. I brought it home and painted it, then dug a hole and cemented in the pipe. Initially, I mounted the five-inch refractor on it, the same instrument which I had used to discover the previous comet. In over 4,900 hours of comet hunting, spanning 17 years, I had never searched for comets from a permanent mount. Everything I had used in the past had been on a portable mount. And the cost for the pipe, the pipe fittings, and the cement all came to under $20. So I did it for under budget. In early June, I removed the 5-inch refractor and placed my five-and-a-half-inch homemade binoculars onto the mount. Now, these binoculars are heavy. They weigh 120 pounds, and mounting them on the pipe was not easy. The binoculars are better at finding comets. They, They do have more contrast than the refractor, but it is a bit slower. With the binoculars, I had found comets in 1986 and 1988, Times became tougher for me in late June of 1992 when I was told that my services were no longer needed as an assistant manager at Little Caesars Pizza. Not only were there no general manager positions open at the four-store system, but no openings were anticipated as they had been when I was hired three months before. I could no longer work as an assistant manager because the owners decided to use the hourly workers for those responsibilities. I was a manager without a store, and I was excess, and that was it. So my last day of work was Saturday, June 27th. My new job was to find a new job. This began on Monday, June 29th. The days would be spent looking for employment in an area and at a time that jobs were scarce. This was one of the few times in my life, since I was like 14 years old, that I have been unemployed. During the nights, my comet hunting continued. Clouds hampered observing for the last three nights of June, but the morning of July 1st, I got out for nearly an hour of comet hunting before clouds came in. I decided to try for an all-nighter that evening. This is rare. In 17 years of comet hunting, I had probably done fewer than a dozen all-night comet hunting sessions. With the shorter summer nights, this should be something that I could do. So that evening, the Wednesday July 1st, I began at 10.05 p.m. with comet hunting using the 10-inch reflector telescope set up on our back deck. Now, for years, I would wear my special comet hunting clothes for these sessions. They were especially warm and had lots of pockets. But tonight, I wore my regular day clothes with my one-piece warm suit over them. I picked up a lot of faint galaxies in the northwestern part of the sky and I swept from my back deck for nearly four hours. By 2.25 a.m., I had finished my work with a 10-inch telescope. I packed my maps, radio, eyepieces, and flashlight into a five-gallon bucket and walked 100 feet or so to the five-inch binoculars, now on the permanent mount. Our dog, Lassie, followed me and went to sleep on the blanket I had placed at my feet. We had several dogs during those years of comet hunting in Koufax, and quite often when I would be out comet hunting, the dog would be with me. That morning, July 2nd, I then swept, now with the binoculars, the North Polar region, covering more area than I had planned, taking longer than I had expected. I had intended to finish up the polar region and begin sweeping the eastern sky by 3.30 a.m. And this would give me about 40 minutes before twilight would bring an end to the long night of comet hunting. As it turned out, I didn't swing over to the eastern horizon until 3.50. Now normally, I make my first horizontal sweep rather high in the sky with each sweep going lower until I get to the horizon. That's what I do in the morning sky, always have. But this morning, with very little time left, I instead began at the horizon. And after each horizontal sweep, I moved upward. I recall how veteran Australian comet hunter William Bradfield had stated this is how he sweeps the morning sky, Many years ago, I studied this method and determined that it has its advantages and disadvantages. Some zones in the morning sky are seen better, a little bit higher in the sky, but some are not. Now, with this in mind, I began right along the distant tree line with my first sweep. Because my observing seat wasn't high enough for me to comfortably see through the binoculars, I placed one of my star atlases on the bench, and I sat up on it for a little more height. Shortly after beginning my fourth sweep, while I was working southward, I picked up a circular fuzzy object. After putting on my glasses, sighting along the binoculars, which have no finder scope, and realizing what part of the sky I was in, I knew that this was a new comet. The radio I was listening to was playing the song Crying by Don McLean. It was 4.01 Pacific Daylight Time. I had to determine the exact position of the comet so I could properly report it to the Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This did not take long, and... In 10 minutes, I had it plotted on my atlas. Uh, now, this next part is a mystery to me. I then probably made a large-scale drawing to try to determine motion in reference to the background stars. i do this for all potential comets. But in the years since then, I have not been able to locate that drawing. It is not where it would normally be, which is on the back page, the back side of my At the Telescope log sheet. It would typically be on the back of that sheet, it's just not there. It is possible that I did not, in fact, make a large-scale drawing to check for motion. Because time was short, twilight was approaching And it was more important to get an accurate position for it off the star atlas and show it to Laura than to check for motion. Dawn was approaching, so I had to hurry. Now my six-inch telescope, the Criterion Dynoscope, was already set up next to the house. I went to it and quickly found the comet in that instrument. I then went into the house and awoke my wife, Laura, my late wife, Laura. We were married for 33 years, and she passed away in 2013. And I tried to wake up my son, Matthew, age 6, but he was too sleepy to get up. Laura came out and looked through the 6-inch scope and saw the comet at about magnitude 9, although it was getting difficult in the twilight. Now, I did not detect any motion of the comet in the 35 minutes I was able to observe it. We now know it would have moved about one and a half arc minutes downward during those 35 minutes. I just did not detect that. I did know that it was a comet, and I had to report it. So I phoned Dr. Brian Marsden at the Smithsonian. No one had reported an object here. That was always good news to hear whenever I reported something. And now it was just a matter of confirming it. I expected to have clear skies the next morning. After all, July, northern California, usually the skies are clear. However, high clouds came in the next morning and covered the eastern part of the sky. After an hour of searching through the holes in the clouds, I finally picked up the comet in the twilight sky. I got only a rough idea of its position but it had moved about a degree. I phoned the Smithsonian, and at that time, I was the only person to confirm the comet. Later, a report was received from Ellen Hale, who, alerted in New Mexico about my find, confirmed the comet. It was announced later in the morning. It was in the constellation Auriga. The comet, Comet Macholtz 1992K, also known as c 1992 n one machholz was headed towards the sun. It was on the far side of the sun as seen from the earth. I was able to observe it nearly every morning through July 10th. So from July 2nd through 10th, almost every morning I was able to see it. July 11th and 12th were cloudy, And when I resumed observing it on July 13th, I could no longer see the comet. When I had discovered it on July 2nd, it was only 30 degrees from the sun, which is fairly close for a comet discovery. And it was only 11 degrees above my northeastern horizon. By July 13th, it had moved south and towards the sun. It was lost in the morning twilight. In all, I observed it on five mornings. Now listen to this. Then I had 26. 26 unsuccessful attempts to see it after that. With my last attempt, August twenty-fifth, 1992. What else am I to do? I just get up every morning and go out there and look to see where it should be and see if I can see it. 26 times I went out. 26 times, I did not see it. Of my comet discoveries, this was probably the least observed comet by anyone. Due to its low altitude, accurate positions of the comet and a determination of its orbit were slow in coming. Through the first week following discovery, the Central Bureau for Astronomical Telegrams was calculating the orbit from Alan Hales and my positions. And our positions don't have the accuracy of professional observatories' photographs. Finally, after nine days, enough accurate positions were secured to publish an orbit. It showed that the comet was closest to the sun on July 11th at 0.8 astronomical units, slightly inside the Earth's orbit, and that it was unlikely to return. However, with only a handful of comet positions to work with, the orbit calculation is not as accurate as is secured for comets observed over a longer arc. The eccentricity, or shape of the orbit, was calculated to be only 1.0. Accurate to one decimal point with still some uncertainty for the eccentricity. Now, my two disintegrated comets, 1985 and 1988, also have such an undetermined orbit. Then, in 2010, I discovered my 11th comet. It, too, has an eccentricity that was uncertain because it was only observed for about a week. Any of these four comets are remnants could be left over if it disintegrated, could in fact return someday, and the orbital calculation would tie them in with the comets originally discovered by me. For about a week, three of my six comets that I had found up to that point were visible. I saw both 1992-D, which I had discovered three months before, and this one, 1992-K, On the morning of July 8th, I have seldom been able to see two of my comets the same night. They were as close as 18 degrees from each other in late April. This was three months before 1992 was discovered. Meanwhile, my periodic comet at that time, 96p, was visible in large telescopes. So of the three comets, uh, six comets I had discovered, three were visible The other three remaining comets that I had discovered, two had disintegrated, and one, the first one I found, was on an orbit carrying it out of the solar system. Comet 1992K was found 61 search hours and three months following my find of 1992D. It was my third comet discovery with these binoculars, and my second find from Koufax, California. By the time I left Koufax, 26 years later in 2018, I had discovered eight comets from that property in Koufax, California. That concludes the story of the discovery of comet 1992K that I found from Koufax, California. Our telescopic challenge this week, and in binoculars, we're going to be looking at a couple of globular star clusters. They're only a few degrees apart, and they appear quite different from each other. They are in the constellation Scorpius, in your southern sky as the evening begins. Can you guess which ones they are? Okay, time's up. They are M4 and M80, I have provided a finder chart for these, Podcast 129, Map 3. You can find that on my website. M4 is a large globular cluster, appearing so because it's one of our closest globular clusters at a distance of only 6,000 light years. That's about as far as the double cluster in Perseus. To find it, first find the red giant Antares, then go due west 1.2 degrees. Now, if you go northwest instead of due west, you might pick up a different cluster, the much fainter 6144. M4 is magnitude 6.4, and it measures 14 arc minutes in size, about half the diameter of the moon as seen from the Earth. One unusual aspect of this cluster is that it has a line of stars running north-south down the middle of it. The cluster is 70 light-years across and over 10 billion years old. Crank up the magnification, and you can see some of the individual stars. Next, we're going to move over to M80. And to get there from M4, head 3.9 degrees to the northwest. M80 is small, so in a finder scope, you might mistake it for a star. M80 is magnitude 8.1, and it's only 3 arc minutes in size. It's far away, about as far away as the average globular cluster, 27,000 light years. The core of the cluster is very dense, but around that core, you can see streams of stars. To recap the podcast, what's up this coming week? You still have time to see those five bright planets in the morning sky. And cm 4 and M80. And Comet Pan-Stars. You have been listening to Looking Up with Don, podcast episode number 129 for June twenty 2022. I'm Don Muckles. Once again, the related website for this podcast is donmacholtz.com. That is spelled D-O-N-M-A-C-H-H-O-L-Z dot com. Two H's. You can contact me at dontheastronomer at gmail dot com. Once again, that is dontheastronomer at gmail dot com. God willing and pod willing. I'll be back next week for another episode of Looking Up with Don. We'll look at more objects in the evening sky and I'll talk about which astronomical events are time dependent and which are not. All that and more. Thank you for listening. See the sky this week. I'll see you next week.